0: We're going to turn now to the Word of God. If you'd pick up your Bibles, and if you've got one of these church Bibles, we're on page 940, the letter to the Romans in the New Testament. Page 940, Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. If you give me a big smile when you've found it, I'll know you're all there. I'm going to read from chapter 2 and verse 17 through to verse 20 of chapter 3. Romans 2, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Comes knowledge of sin. Well, uh,
1: good morning to you all. Uh, Do open your Bibles or keep them open at page 940. And um, uh, as uh, Richard read, that's where we're going to be spending our time between chapter two, uh, verse 17 to chapter three, verse 20. And do keep your Bibles open. This will help a lot as we go through this. That there's a lot of information in here, and it'll be great to have access to the text at all points. Also, very sorry about the uh, unfortunate hiatus last week. Um, I'm now much better. I blame Toby entirely. Um, But thank you very much for your prayers and uh, for your support. And uh, we're doing much better as a family, which is great. And my job today, then, is to remind us of where we've got to in Romans so far and to pick up where Roger left us two weeks ago and to bring this introductory part of Romans to a close... And this introduction is, if you like, like a a big foundation stone on which Paul is going to build the rest of his case for the gospel. And the gospel is, if you remember, chapter 1, verse 16, the power of salvation for everyone who believes. But before we get to see what that salvation entails, Paul is determined to make sure that we, his readers, are all starting off in the same place. And Paul does that by setting out his stall in detailing the state of humanity. And I always see this very much like the president of the U.S. giving his State of the Union address before his entire government, where the president details how the nation is doing and what might need to be done to to fix it. Except, unlike the president, Paul does not wax lyrical on the successes that have been achieved over the course of the year, or on the hard work that needs to be done over the course of the next. He doesn't begrudgingly concede that there are some things perhaps that have not gone quite so well that need work on. Paul does not spin or twist his assessment on how things really are. Paul's state of the union address, Paul's state of humanity address, has only one major point, and it is a damning one. And it is found in chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. And in verse 12, no one does good, not even one. And in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. In short, the state of humanity is desperate. And verse 20 of chapter 3 is where we've been heading for over these past few weeks. Paul wants his readers to know, he wants the whole world to know, that there is an inherent, unassailable problem with humanity, and that is that we are all done for, physically and spiritually, before a holy God. We're all doomed. We all have an untreatable, fatal disease. We are, all of us, chapter 1, verse 18, under the present reality of God's wrath being poured out on us. All thanks to our ungodliness, our unrighteousness, and our idolatry. And no one is exempt, no one is immune, and no one has a plan to deal with it. But as we've been seeing over these past few weeks, there are groups of people who are determined to wriggle out of this assessment. And you'll remember from last week, the first group of people who object to Paul are those who see themselves as morally upright. That's the, the first objection Paul has to deal with. But, but I'm a good person. Surely we're not included in on this, Paul. Well, says Paul, yes, you are. As Roger reminded us, Paul explains that you you cannot sidestep this assessment of humanity by pointing to other people and saying, well, well, I can can understand if if she were under God's wrath, she's awful, but not me. Thank goodness I'm not like them. Chapter 2, verse 1. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you yourself practice the very same things. You may not think you've actually committed a crime. You may not, for example, have actually slept with another man's wife. You may not have murdered someone, but but your thoughts, your lusts, your hatred, your desires, they all condemn you. No matter how good we think we are, we are just not good enough to be good enough for a holy, righteous god and so you too are under god's wrath says paul you cannot wriggle out of this one all of you who purport to be good and so today we come to the second objection that paul faces and in many respects this one is worse but i'm a religious person Okay, Paul, being good can't save me, but surely being religious can. And this is where we pick up today's passage. Let's just read together again, chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now this is important right from the off, that that Paul is obviously speaking very directly to the Jews in this Roman church. That's his audience. And for 99.9% of us in this room, we're not Jewish. But again, we cannot not wriggle out of allowing what Paul says to the religious Jew here being applied to us sitting here today. And Roger reminded us two weeks ago that that Judaism was the religion initiated by God himself. And so Judaism is then the, the highest form of religion. It is the cream of religious endeavor. And so if being Jewish isn't good enough, then it stands to reason that any form of religious practice is not going to be good enough. And that's where we come into this. Look how Paul describes this Jew. If you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, to those of you, in other words, who who claim Jewishness, who who wear it as a badge of identity, something that is a source of pride, verse 17b, to those of you who rely on the law and boast in God, that is, to those of you who attempt to perfectly obey God's God's word to get into his favor, those of you who praise God and, and willingly worship him every day, Verse 18, to to those of you who know God's will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. That is all of you who study and apply and and teach and wrestle with the law of God and, and use it to approve what is excellent in society. Verse 19, to those of you who are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher to children, someone who embodies knowledge and truth, that is the knowledge and truth of the one true God and his word. To those of you who actually teach this stuff to others, here's the kick in the teeth, verse 21. Do you not teach yourself? This isn't just a question from Paul, it's an accusation. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you preach against committing adultery, do you commit adultery? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You see what Paul is saying to the Jews of Rome? It is not merely knowledge of God's word and his ways. It is not merely the the storing up of information about God. It is not even the, the proclamation and the teaching of his word that makes you perfectly righteous. There has to be an obedience that accompanies that. That's the difference between genuine faith and mere religion, says Paul. That's the difference between genuine trust in a loving God, wanting to do what he says, and just being a hypocrite. You see, many of the Jews thought they were safe with God through what they knew about God's word. Many were confident in their safety through being able to teach the word of God. But they were not living out what they preached so confidently. And in that case, what they preached then was meaningless. They didn't love God's word. And so, says, Paul, you too are found to be under God's wrath. And to these Jews, the the knowledge of God's word was more important than loving and obeying God's word. And here's the rub. In a church like Chalmers, in a church that that loves God's word, it may just be that there are some of us sitting here today who are guilty of doing exactly the same. Are there some of us here this morning confident in our Christianity purely because of the type of church that we go to, a church that is strong on Bible teaching? Are there some of us here this morning who teach and uphold the word of God to others, but who do not apply it to our own lives? Now there's some of us here playing fast and loose with the gospel, affirming the word and exhortations to holiness on Sunday, but living a very different life in the rest of the week. Placing our confidence in mere knowledge of the word of God rather than trusting it and loving it and wanting to live it out. You see, it is true that there may be some of us here today sitting comfortably and confident in Chalmers this morning in a church that preaches the Word of God, that has good knowledge of the Word of God, that is serious about the Word of God, that enthusiastically defends and evangelizes the Word of God, but who have not submitted to the Word of God in your hearts, who do not love Jesus. If so, that's dangerous, says Paul. Crafting good sermons isn't going to get me into heaven. Looking religiously good isn't going to get me into heaven. Being an eloquent teacher, a theology PhD student, a good small group leader, it won't get me into heaven. What matters is submitting to and loving God's good word. And the point of all that is, is that that reveals really what is going on in my heart, doesn't it? And that's exactly where Paul turns to next, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, well, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, says Paul, those of you who stand on the physical outward act of becoming Jewish through circumcision as a way to be right with God, well, if you're not living in obedience to the law, then your circumcision means nothing. That makes sense. Because, verses 28 and 29... And this is really the whole point that these good-living Jewish people had missed in all of this. No one is a Jew, verse 28, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. In other words, what it really means to be a follower of God is the response of your heart. What God looks for is not fake outward observance, not eloquence in teaching, not circumcision or or any kind of outward sign of religious self-sacrifice. It is real inward transformation of the heart that leads to godly obedience. That really reveals where a person stands before a holy God. Again, are there some of us here today who have always stood on an outward sign of religion as a way to get into heaven? It may not be on circumcision, but perhaps you have always relied on your baptism, or on your Presbyterianism, or on the monthly communion you take, or your daily prayers, or your parents' faith, or your impressive church lineage going back for generations, or your decades of church attendance, or the fish on your car and the the cross around your neck. These are all good and fine Christian things, but Paul says, if you have not been changed and transformed radically by the gospel, fundamentally on a heart level, then all that outward stuff is useless. You see, it is not inconceivable that in a big evangelical church, a church that preaches the truth about grace, a church that sincerely loves God's word, that there may be some of us sitting here who have fallen into the trap of the religious Jew. Do you see coming to church as your way of salvation? Do you see your area of service in the church as your protection against God's wrath? Do you see your decades-long association with your denomination as your righteousness? Do you see your gospel rhetoric and your teaching ministry as simply enough Well, says Paul, if that is you this morning, then you're in a perilous situation. You are, verse 24, blaspheming God. You're you're pretending to honor him in public with your mouth, but in private wanting nothing to do with him. What is required is a heart changed and transformed by the gospel that leads to godly obedience in the word of God. But I'm religious, is the objection. But that's not good enough is the answer. And despite all this weight of evidence that Paul stoops up against us, we are still not done trying to wriggle out of this. Because as we move on to our next point, we see that these objections to Paul's state of humanity, they don't stop. And so in chapter 3, 1 to 8, we see that these final objections need to be dealt with. Now for this bit, Do keep your Bibles open. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, as I go through this this dense bit of argument. And I hope it helps us a little as we see what Paul is trying to do here. And Paul's aim, I think, in these verses is, is, is to present and then dismantle the last possible objections a Jew might have to all of this. And Paul does this by embarking on what is called a philosophical diatribe. That is, Paul asks himself a series of objections from an imaginary objector, in this case, an imaginary Jew, and he allows us to see how he would answer them. That's what's going on. And then, so let's take this passage bit by bit and, with Paul, build up his arguments against these final objections. And the first objection is in verse 1. Okay then, Paul, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, it sounds like you're saying, Paul, that in fact the whole Jewish religion that God himself, remember, instigated was a redundant exercise. If there's no difference between being a Jew and being a Gentile, if if neither keeps me from God's judgment, then what is the point in being Jewish at all? In fact, does that not mean that God has undermined his own covenant with his own people? And does that not, in fact, make God out to be some kind of bully, forcing us into a religion that was not special in any way and produced nothing? And so Paul answers, verse 2. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, says Paul. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Just because being Jewish doesn't have in itself safety from God's judgment, it does have an enormous advantage. It was to the Jews alone that the very words of God were given. It was to the Jews alone that the whole of the Old Testament was entrusted to be passed on to future generations so that people the world over could hear the gospel. This word was, in fact, Psalm 147, given to no other nation. The advantage the Jew had was enormous, says Paul. We knew of God's plan first. We were the guardians of God's gospel. We were the ones who were shown first the promise of salvation, bound up in the future Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews had an enormous God-given responsibility. So no, Paul argues, God is not a bully. Being a Jew was fundamentally important and a truly special privilege. The the covenant relationship God had with his people was fundamentally necessary for the protection and handing down of God's own words of salvation to humanity. Okay then, Paul, says the Jewish objector, verse 3. What if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify or destroy the faithfulness of God? In other words if the covenant was all about faith in the promise of salvation that that the law and the Old Testament pointed towards, and if some Jews were found to be unfaithful and thus failed to inherit that promise of salvation, does that not mean that God's promise of salvation has in fact failed? And does that then not mean that God is unfaithful to his own promise? Verse 4, Paul answers, by no means. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. In other words, even if every single man the world over were unfaithful, that doesn't do away with God's faithfulness, because he is faithful to himself. And anyway, as we see in history, and as this letter is going to detail, salvation is growing on the earth. Not only that, says Paul, but look at what King David himself says in verse 4b, second bit, taken from Psalm 51 this psalm of repentance after sleeping with Bathsheba. David says this, Against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned and done evil in your sight, verse 4 picks this up, so that you might be justified in your words and prevailed when you judge. Meaning my very sin, all my unfaithfulness, only proves what God says about humanity is true. That we are faithless creatures under his wrath in need of the promise of salvation. No, says Paul. Man's unfaithfulness does not make God unfaithful to his promise of salvation. It only proves our need for it, and therefore proves God to be truthful in what he says. Okay, if that is the case, the objector responds finally. If, verse 5, our unrighteousness then serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Furthermore, the objector continues, verse 7, if through my lying God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not then do evil that good may come? In other words, if then our unfaithfulness and our sin and our unrighteousness shows God's goodness and our need for salvation in an even greater light if our sin makes God look even better by comparison in his faithfulness and in his holiness and in his salvation, then why are we under his wrath? Surely it's a good thing that we're sinful if it benefits God's character. Why would he punish us for that? Why am I being condemned as a sinner? Shouldn't I be sinning more, in fact, so that God looks even greater? Am I not, in fact, doing God a favor? Verse 6 is the answer. By no means, says Paul. Firstly, for how then could God judge the world? There's little argument here, says Paul. Just remind yourself of the truth of God's character. God is judge. And sin is judged by God, and that means we shouldn't be sinning. It's not a way we should be living. We can't twist ourselves out of sinning. It's wrong, and it's judged by God who has the rights to judge. And that is enough for us, says Paul. In short, to Paul, the question is absurd. And anyone who chooses to live like this, verse 8, well, their condemnation is just. They deserve to be judged. Now, the question is, why is all this here? (coughs) Why is it that we have these convoluted diatribes of Paul? Why is this tight argument even necessary for us to spend time on this morning? Well, is this not how the world reacts when faced with the reality that Paul presents us with? These arguments are the desperate objections of a desperate person. The cry of the world, the cry of the religious person, the cry of the good person, is that if there be any way that this appraisal of humanity does not concern me, then I will find it. And so this desperate objector and his increasingly desperate objections and his callous assassination of God's character, he he squirms and he rallies against the unassailable truth that everyone is included in the harrowing reality that all of us are under God's incredible wrath. And no matter how much we object, there is no way of escaping it. And so with these objections dealt with, Paul rests his case, and he comes to his conclusion, and that is simply that, therefore, no one is righteous, not even one. Read with me chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. What then, are the Jews any better off in terms of salvation, that is? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Have you noticed how Paul presents this conclusion to his opening address? He does so using the oracles of God given to the Jews. This whole section quotes six different Psalms, two Proverbs, and the prophet Isaiah. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to them that Jewishness was not going to save them. And so it shouldn't come as a shock to us that being good and being religious is just not going to make us safe. And boy, is this conclusion grim. These quotes from the Old Testament leave us where we were in the end of chapter 1. Unrecognizable, detestable, barely human. And this is exactly where Paul wants to leave us. In verse 19 with our mouths stopped. Our very last, most desperate objections having been dealt with in verses 1 to 8. We have nothing left to say. All our goodness, all our religiousness, all our self-righteousness laid bare in all its pitiful glory for everyone to see. And now here we are, standing alongside the whole world, alongside the good, the bad, and the religious, in the most one-sided, damning trial in history, being held accountable to an angry, holy God. What on earth is the answer? Well, verse 21 Is the answer. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The answer is Jesus. That's what Paul is dragging us, kicking and screaming towards the solution. But we can only get there if we are utterly convinced that there is no one righteous, not even one, not even me. And that's the point. If there is any way I could think about ducking God's wrath myself, then there's no need for the solution of Jesus Christ. There's no need for there to be another righteousness that is apart from the law. I'll find it myself. And so this truly gruesome, heavy, brutal assessment that Paul levels at humanity, it's not a bad thing, it's a necessary thing. It gets us, no matter how much we fight it, to the point where I am truly left, in verse 19, lost and doomed and spiritually destitute, so that Paul can pick up the entirety of humanity and say, here is your salvation. It is not found in you, It is found in Christ. This is so important as we close off this introduction to the book of Romans. You see, these things Paul mentions regarding the Jews, they are not bad things. These Jews were genuinely trying to be righteous. But they weren't perfectly righteous. It is good that we should be teaching the word of God and approving what is excellent and instructing the foolish and teaching our children. It is good to be baptized, going to church every week, showing outwardly who we are by doing good things. But as Tim Keller says, it is the word rely in verse 17 that is the death knell for the religious Jew and for the religious Christian. Do I rely on my knowledge and teaching of God's word for salvation? Do I rely on merely my baptism or denomination for my salvation? Or do I rely as a sinner in need of daily help who is doomed on the righteousness of God? And as I preach this, I am hyper-aware of the distance between what I know of the Word of God and how I need to live in response to that. And to some extent, that that gap is always going to be there. Roger reminded us two weeks ago that there's only one person who can fulfill chapter 2, verse 7. The man who, by patience and well-doing, perfectly seeks glory and honor and immortality and will receive eternal life. That's Jesus. And that's the point. This isn't an exhortation to be perfect. The exhortation is to cling to Christ who is perfect. To those of us who really do love Jesus this morning, that this passage isn't a hammer blow. It is a glorious reminder that we were doomed, but we are now in Christ. We read this and we are to remind ourselves of just what it means to be in Christ. We are truly saved, not by anything religious that we have done, but by clinging solely onto Christ and his death and his cross and his resurrection. And we are reminded this morning, therefore, not to be tempted to rely on Christian things for our security, but to rely in daily repentance and faith on the righteousness from God that has now been revealed, living out the word of God obediently and joyfully. The deeper level application here is for those of us who have perhaps been coming to church for years and have never followed Christ. I compel you today, don't be like the religious Jew. Don't hold on to outward religious observances. Don't hold on to your lineage of Christianity. Relinquish that and hold on to Christ. Find him today while he can be found. Stand not on your righteousness as a good person or as a religious person, but stand on the righteousness that comes from God. The state of humanity is grim. Humanity stands silent and condemned in verses 19 and 20. But humanity is now ready to hear the solution in verse 21, the righteousness that comes from God. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much that your word does not duck the truth. Heavenly Father, this is absolutely necessary for us to hear and sit in this morning. Lord God, we are reminded that we are truly useless and hopeless and unfaithful to you and not good enough for your presence. But Lord, we praise you so much for the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that heavenly solution. Thank you so much for his death, his life, and his resurrection. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that there is now a righteousness that is beyond ourselves, that comes from God, that makes us right with you. Lord God, if we have been coming to church for years and we have never asked the Lord Jesus into our lives, Lord God, I really pray that today we would do that for the first time. Help us to be truly convicted by this, we pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who do love you and have been Christians for a while, help us to remember that we are to live a life of full obedience and daily repentance in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, may we be excited and truly changed and affected by what we have read here today. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for the glorious gospel and for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray all these things. Amen.